everyone. Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. In our past two-part episode, The Quick and the Dead, I shared some family history in saying that I grew up with stories about the American West. My dad had been raised on a small ranch in New Mexico, which would later become a part of Philmont Boy Scout Ranch. And in that part of the country, the stories told were about men like Sam Bass, Dave Rudabaugh, Bat Masterson, Wes Harden, Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp, and Billy the Kid, born Henry McCarty, later known as Billy Antrim, and then William Bonney, with most folks still calling him Billy the Kid. Most people around that part of New Mexico thought of Billy as a good kid turned outlaw by a strange twist of events that he didn't ask for and taken advantage of by corrupt politicians looking to make a quick buck and a name for themselves. He was no Robin Hood, but then again, he was no cold-blooded killer either. They say he killed 17 men, and just as many Indians. But in truth, it was known for sure that he only killed four men, two in self-defense, and two when he was trying to escape from a jail that he was wrongly put in. The one known picture of him, a tintype, makes him look like a well-armed, buck-toothed simpleton, but nothing could be further from the truth. According to those who knew him, he had brown hair, blue eyes, a quick smile that showed a good sense of humor, and he carried a deep loyalty for his friends. On top of that, he had studied while he was in school and could write extremely well, which he would do often, a rarity for frontier-educated kids, especially for those who, like him, had moved from town to town throughout his youth. There have been many stories written about Billy the Kid, real name Henry McCarty, because he left a lot of history behind him when his life, as many believe, ended at the tender age of 21, when Sheriff Pat Garrett ambushed him, entering his room at his friend Peter Maxwell's house in Fort Sumner. But there's just as many who believe that Billy's one-time friend Pat Garrett, once bartender, now a sheriff, didn't shoot him that night, that he got the wrong man, and that Billy the Kid lived under an assumed name until well into the 20th century. We'll cover that in an upcoming episode titled Billy the Kid, Still Standing. I dug deep on this story. I had to because there was a lot of inconsistencies I found between different versions of the story. Most versions being pretty quick to make the case that Billy the Kid was a common house thief turned murderer. But then I found James D. Horan's account. And he had spent a good 20 years researching western gunfighters, including Billy the Kid, relying heavily on letters, records, newspaper accounts, and testimony of witnesses and found that James D. Horan had a very well-documented story that differed greatly from most of the stuff that's out there. In my opinion, James D. Horan is one of the few guys who got the story right, a story you very likely have never heard, and a story that's very unique because it tells the truth about Billy the Kid. Pour a cup of something good and settle back, because this story is going to take some telling. When Billy's father, Michael McCarty, died in New York City, Billy's mother, Catherine, picked up Billy and his younger brother, Joseph, and what money Michael had left behind, and headed west to start a new life. She was an independent and business-minded woman, and she opened boarding houses and laundry services to support her family as she settled first in Indianapolis, where she met, but did not at first marry, William Antrim, who worked for an express company, and who followed her to Wichita, where in 1871, he built a 12 by 14 foot square house for her, then a well, and then added fruit trees, which must have done the trick because she agreed to marry Antrim at that point. Billy, whose name was Henry then, 
He was going to school and learning fast. Billy and his younger brother Joe worked in the laundry business that she had established and became accustomed to life in a frontier town with its stagecoaches, reservation Indians, cavalry, bars, brawls, and gunfights. Life was good, until Catherine let it be known that she was sick with tuberculosis. She had to sell off her business and property and head for a drier climate, first going to Denver and finally winding up in Silver City, New Mexico, where she opened a boarding house. William Andrum worked in the mines. In her last year, 1873, she agreed to marry Andrum, probably to make sure Billy and Joe had a legal father. And then death started wasting her away one day at a time. A tough experience for Billy and Joe, and Billy fell apart. He spent four months at his mother's side while her body was racked with coughing and watched helplessly as she faded away. He left school and church and started hanging out in all the wrong places, gambling halls, street corners, and bars. His father couldn't reach him and finally found a friend for him in the owner of the Star Hotel in Silver City, Mrs. Truesdell, who hired Billy and put him to work waiting on tables and doing kitchen chores. Many years later, she told a reporter that Billy was the kindest and the only one who had never stolen anything from her. He was polite, he worked hard, and obeyed every order to the detail. He never was a bad boy, she said, but he did get a little wild, especially when he fell into the company of an older boy named Sombrero Jack, who was a small-time thief and an all-around no-good. Mrs. Truesdale became a mother figure to Billy. The Truesdales sold the hotel in 1875, and Billy went to live with a good soul named Mrs. Brown, and nobody's sure what happened to his brother Joe at that point. The Truesdales sold the hotel in 1875. In September of that year, Billy was arrested for stealing clothes, of all things, from Charlie Sun and Sam Chung, who owned a Chinese laundry. They called the Chinese Celestials back in those days. It turns out that Mrs. Brown had found the stolen clothes in Billy's room, clothes stolen by his older friend Sombrero Jack, and handed off quickly to Billy to hide for him. Jack, as you might expect, disappeared, and Billy got the rap. And that was his first brush with the law, and how he got a record as a thief. So how many times do we tell our kids you'll be judged by the company you keep? Early one morning, soon after a knock came on Mrs. Truesdale's door, although she had sold the hotel, she stayed in town, and it was Billy. When she opened the door, he whispered that he was now on the run. He had escaped from jail climbing up the chimney. She fed him, went to a little wooden box where she kept her savings, and handed him some money. Then she arranged a place for him on the next stage out of town, which was headed for Globe, Arizona. He had no horse and no gun. He was just a kid, but he did have a new name, William Bonney, the one he'd given to Sheriff Whitehall the day of his arrest. And he was now a wanted man. Three years later, he was working on a local ranch near Camp Grant, Arizona, that being located at the junction of Aravipa Creek and the San Pedro River. That was the same area where Tom Horn, as you might remember from our story on him, had built a cattle ranch, only to see all his stock stolen by rustlers. Camp Grant had begun as a Civil War camp and soon became a frontier post in the Apache Wars, where it saw a lot of action protecting settlers from Indian attacks. Starting in 1871, white settlers had begun pouring into the Aravipa Valley of Arizona, making survival difficult for the Aravipa and Pima Apaches already living there. The Apaches retaliated, first stealing livestock, then attacking settlers, and war broke out on both sides. Camp Grant earned a black mark in history journals and at some online information sites, 
for what has become known as the Camp Grant Massacre, when soldiers supposedly opened up on a group of unarmed Pima Indians who had surrendered. That version might be popular, but it has it all wrong. There was a massacre, all right, but it was committed by six whites, 94 San Javier Papago Indians, and 48 Mexicans, against eight men and 110 sleeping women and children in the canyon. Not at the fort. All these killers should have gone to prison, but didn't. And here's the true story. The murder massacre was committed by a handful of Tucson citizens and their assembled raiding party, and supported by the town of Tucson as a whole. Camp Grant was located about 60 miles north of Tucson, in the Aravipa Valley, and the military camp was under the leadership of an officer named Captain Whitman, who had been working to make peace with the area Apaches and offer protection to those who sought peace. He encouraged those who did surrender to set up a camp a few miles from Camp Grant, along a stream. Up in Tucson, the civilian attitude towards Indians was kill them all, nitsmeg lice, and the town business leaders and newspapers echoed this sentiment. Some had themselves survived Indian attacks and lost friends and family. There was little pity to go around for the plight of the Indian. Four white men and some Mexicans, and yes, their names were known, organized a raiding party using mostly Mexicans and Tucson Reservation Indians who had some deep grudges against the Aravipa Apaches and headed for the reservation near Camp Grant in total secrecy. No one except the attackers knew of the raid until afterward. It was a slaughter, 118 killed in 30 minutes. The only survivors were papooses who were sold off as slaves and a few who didn't escape and were able to reach Camp Grant to tell them what had happened. All of them were unarmed. All this happened out of earshot from the fort, but when the few survivors made it to the fort, Whitman assembled a company and rode out. Whitman and many of his soldiers were horrified by what they saw at the massacre site. But in Tucson, the reaction was completely different, with newspapers, citizens, and government leaders celebrating the victory over the Indians and honoring as heroes the leaders of the surprise attack. What a farce. Back east, the response was very different, with then-President Ulysses S. Grant calling the Camp Grant attack pure murder. District Attorney Converse W.C. Rowell was directed to obtain indictments against the perpetrators, but met with stiff local resistance and was even burned in effigy in Tucson. Grand Jury Secretary Andrew Cargill snuck a peek at a telegram from U.S. Attorney General Amos Ackerman instructing Rowell to get an indictment in three days, or he would declare martial law, which would mean a military court with Army officers serving as a court-martial board in lieu of a jury. As a result of this threat, the grand jury quickly named Sidney R. DeLong the lead defendant among 100, many identified only as Indians of San Javier del Bac, on an indictment for the murder of 108 Apaches. The defense focused on Apache depredations in an attempt to justify what happened near Camp Grant. Not a massacre, they insisted, but self-defense. After deliberating just 19 minutes, the Tucson jury as might be expected, found all defendants not guilty. At the time, the perpetrators expressed little remorse for what they had done. Much later, DeLong stated that his only regret in life was having taken part in the Camp Grant affair, as he named it. The stain that was attached to Fort Grant should have been placed on Tucson, and that's the true side of the story of the Fort Grant massacre. This story deserves to be told here, especially for the benefit of some of our listeners who think that all U.S. cavalry were bloodthirsty killers. Well, 
Some apparently did try to make the peace. There's no monument at that site or in Tucson at last check. Maybe one of you listeners could make a request to the state. It was a few hours after that massacre, in August of 1877, when Billy the Kid killed his first man. He would frequent town when he wasn't working at a local ranch. He was well-liked, and he was still a teen. But as was common in those days, he wore a six-shooter tucked into his trousers for protection. There was no legal age for drinking on the frontier. You worked hard, supported yourself, and could buy a cold beer or a shot of rye when the mood struck you. And the place to get a drink in Camp Grant was the George Atkins Saloon. The saloon had its bully and blowhard, a 32-year-old Irish blacksmith who everyone called Windy. His real name was E.P. Cahill, and one day Windy decided he was going to bully the young kid, which he'd done before, but this time make a show of it. With his smooth face and fair hair, the 17-year-old William Bonnie was the perfect pigeon to be plucked. On that day, Windy was deep into his liquor and decided to have some real fun, so he grabbed the kid and threw him down on the floor. He then jumped on top of Billy, pinning his arms down with his knees, and started slapping his face. In those days, people wouldn't jump in to help. You were left to fry your own bacon, and the helpless teen was getting pounded. Billy yelled out, Hey, you're hurting me. Let me up, according to witnesses. And Cahill's answer was, I want to hurt you. That's why I've got you down. Somehow the kid got his right arm free and reached for his forty-five, which was tucked in the side waistband, an obvious bulge that the drunk Cahill had missed. The men watching saw the forty-five come out, and the room got suddenly quiet. The blacksmith felt the gun pressing into his side and immediately sobered up, straightening up sharply. At that moment, Billy pulled the trigger, and the sound of the blast from the forty-five Colt filled the room. Cahill slumped to one side, mortally wounded. The kid got up from underneath his attacker and ran through the bat-wing doors of the saloon, jumping on the first horse that looked fast, which happened to be John Murphy's racing pony, and headed out of town. Murphy would spend the next six days storming around town, calling Billy a horse thief and murderer. While on his deathbed, Cahill was quoted by the local paper to have said he had had some trouble with Antrim during which the shooting was done, and the coroner's jury of six men, needing nothing other than that, found Billy who they knew as Henry Antrim, guilty of murder. That was frontier justice. That bar still stands today, and it's called the Bonita Store. And as a side note, you all know of the Tarzan stories written by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Well, Burroughs was stationed at Fort Grant in 1896 as an enlisted man after failing the test to get into officer's school at West Point. Today, Fort Grant is a state prison, and the Apaches are all on the reservations. But back then, it was a rough-and-tumble frontier territory. One week after Billy's escape, that racing horse, named Cashaw, was led into town by one of John Murphy's friends with a message to return it to its rightful owner. And no matter where you look, you'll find the story of Billy the Kid murdering an innocent man in that bar, and that being his first cold-blooded murder. But in his research, James D. Horan found the testimony of a very reliable witness 50 years after the fact that told the true story of why Billy the Kid shot E.P. Cahill. And the same goes for the story of the return of the horse to John Murphy. After that shooting, Billy the Kid became a wanderer, drifting among cow camps on the New Mexico-Arizona frontier. As the story goes, stopping in mining towns to drink, gamble, and find odd jobs. He kept moving until he reached Lincoln County, New Mexico, where he first stopped at Dolan and Company's cow camp, and worked briefly, but soon came to an odds with the camp foreman, Billy Morton, 
with whom he had a disagreement, and left. A few weeks later found him at the Co Ranch in Rio Redoso, ten miles south of Lincoln. He quickly became friends with George Coe, who was Billy's age, and it was through George and his cousin Frank that Billy was to learn of the hate and bitterness that was consuming the cattle ranchers in Lincoln County, were trying to survive in a pretty crooked system, both politically and economically, that had been set up in Lincoln County. The cattle king of Lincoln County was John Chisholm, a legendary Texas cowboy who had been one of the first to drive Texas Longhorns north to the newly arrived railroad cars that would take the beeves to hungry eastern markets. Enough of a legend that the trail he took was, and is still called, the Chisholm Trail. Chisholm had more than 60,000 head of cattle grazing on open, unfenced land and had an army of hired hands working to protect what he had. No homesteader or small-time rancher was welcome on any of that land, and whether or not Chisholm held title to it or not made no difference at all. By the time Billy had arrived in the mid to late 70s, Chisholm's domain was being challenged from many directions by smaller ranchers like the Coes, who felt that they had just as much right to settle the open range and were willing to fight for it. The Coes were tough, but so was L.G. Murphy and Company, called The Company, and run by Jimmy Dolan, who Billy had met before he found the Coes, and Frank Riley, along with a bunch of outlaws led by a man named Jesse Evans. The company, in addition to its hired guns, had the protection of what was called the Santa Fe Ring, a group of corrupt politicians, judges, sheriffs, and deputies who, for a buck, could arrest anyone and put anyone in jail and basically run roughshod over the rest of the populace. They were so bad, it took more than a hundred years to clear out that nest of rattlesnakes in Santa Fe. The head of that ring was Tom Catrone, Santa Fe's prosecuting attorney and one of the most powerful politicians on the frontier. And in Mesilla, the seat of Doña Ana County, Colonel William Ryerson, Catrone's evil counterpart, held sway as well. They gave Murphy and the company, led by Major Lawrence J. Murphy, an Irish immigrant who had written with Kit Carson's volunteers, a tremendous amount of power. Just about the time Billy arrived at the Co Ranch, Murphy's partner, Lieutenant Colonel Fritz, who had gotten wealthy along with Murphy on cattle, died in Germany, leaving a $10,000 insurance policy with his sister and brother who were settled in the Rio Bonito Range, eight miles outside of Lincoln. This policy would have an unexpected effect on Billy's future, and we'll get to that in a minute. While at the Co Ranch, Billy also met Dick Brewer, the accepted leader of the small ranches that, like the Coes, were fighting Chisholm's monopoly and dealing with the company. At the huge table in Coe's house, Billy heard Brewer talk about how all the area ranchers were being victimized by Murphy's credit system rates and how many of the small ranchers were turning their accounts away from Murphy to a newcomer called John Tunstall, an Englishman who had established a ranch near the headwaters of the Rio Felix with his partner Alexander McSween and had opened a store in Lincoln to compete with Murphy's high price and high credit store in Lincoln. As the ranchers started pulling business away from the company, meaning Murphy's store, Murphy, who was heavily mortgaged to Tom Catrone, felt threatened and wasn't about to let an honest businessman screw things up with fair competition. So he had his gunman, under the direction of Jesse Evans, start threatening the ranchers. The entire county was turning into a pressure cooker. Tunstall had met the 18-year-old Billy and liked him a lot. Also, he hired him on the ranch and gave him a horse, a saddle, and a new gun. And Billy, 
never having received a gift of anything in his life thus far other than money from Mrs. Turnsdale, finally had someone he could look up to. Billy practiced with the six-shooter and the rifle when work was done, and found he was a natural at handling both. He soon became a crack shot and a lightning-fast draw. The kid was earning his keep, doing his share of ranch work, and accompanying Tunstall to town, which is how he met Tunstall's partner, McSween, who was a lawyer and banker. Billy became familiar with McSween's rantings regarding Murphy, Dolan, and their hired guns, and the corruption of the Santa Fe ring that supported them. McSween had been retained by the late Colonel Fritz's brother and sister to collect the $10,000 insurance policy, and that winter of 1877, McSween traveled to collect the money. On the way back, he made side trips to Kansas, combining the Fritz family business, not the $10,000, with transactions he was doing for Chisholm, who was also his client. While McSween was gone, Dolan convinced Colonel Fritz's relatives to sue McSween for failing to turn over the money, even though he knew that McSween had stated in a letter that he was making sure that no relatives in Germany had any claims to it. By the early spring of 1878, the Dolan-Murphy-Riley group along with the Santa Fe ring, had the ranchers and county tied in a knot and waiting for the first shoe to drop. And drop it did in February when the Murphy group sent Sheriff Matthews to the Tunstall Ranch to confiscate McSween's property. And that was only the beginning. They also produced paperwork giving themselves rights to all of Tunstall's land on the grounds that he was McSween's partner. The fix was in. But word had gotten to the ranch, where young Billy had now worked his way up to foreman, and they were boarded up and ready for a fight. Tunstall wasn't there, so the sheriff and hired gun posse left. Tunstall returned home to the ranch the next morning from Lincoln, and when they explained the situation to him, he asked Billy and the others to leave because he didn't want to risk their being shot in the fight he knew was coming. Billy urged Tunstall to return to safety in Lincoln and let he and his men fight it out, but Tunstall was adamant saying that he had faith in America's democracy, that all the steers and horses in the West weren't worth the cost of one man's life over this stuff, and that he was willing to turn it all over to Murphy, and he would fight it out in the courts. The next day, they all headed for Lincoln. Tunstall, Billy, Billy's best friend, the half-Cherokee Fred Waite, Dick Brewer, Bob Weidman, and John Middleton, a young cowboy. They had with them nine horses, all the personal property not included in the writ of attachment that the sheriff had delivered. Unknown to them, Dolan had arrived at the Tunstall Ranch after they had left with another so-called posse. And when the cook told Dolan that Tunstall and his men had left for Lincoln, Dolan sent 12 hired guns to chase down Tunstall and take his horses, which Dolan believed had been a part of the writ. The Dolan-owned Deputy Sheriff Morton and his riders caught up with them at dusk on the desert trail. Billy was riding at the rear of the party with John Middleton and heard rifle cracks. And when he looked back, he saw 13 riders outlined on the crest of a nearby ridge as one. And right at that moment, the riders gave a whoop and a shout and headed toward Billy and Middleton firing. And they, seeing a large group of mounted men charging their way, headed for the protection of some nearby boulders, along with two other hands, Brewer and Weidman. Having forced these men to cover, the group abruptly turned off and headed for Tunstall, who had refused to head for cover and held his position with the two men who were with him. The group approached. According to both of those men, the group demanded his gun, which he gave them. And then Jesse Evans, as he sat his horse, wanted to talk reason with the posse while unarmed. He was hit twice in the chest 
and fell to the ground. Evans and Morton took Tunstall's pistol and then fired it twice to support the story they would later give that Tunstall fired at them. And when the members of the posse all gave their statements, they said to a man that Tunstall had drawn first and fired at them. All lies, as testimony would soon prove, but to no avail. The soft-spoken Englishman, who had shown only kindness and trust to Billy, was now dead, and the Lincoln County War had begun. The posse, having achieved their mission, which was to kill Tunstall, rode off before the other men could reach the scene. After discovering Tunstall dead, Billy suggested that the men ride to tell McSween what had happened, while he would ride to the Cole Ranch to inform them of Tunstall's murder. When Billy rode in, he saw his friend Frank and told him Tunstall's dead, shot down like a dog, and was over in Sanchez Canyon. Coe arranged to have a sheep herder bring Tunstall's body back to Lincoln, which he did the next day, and by that night a large crowd of angry ranchers, men and women, gathered at Tunstall's, now in a candlelit room in the back of the building, to listen to a bitter and angry McSween. McSween told the gathered group of people that there was no longer any law or justice in Lincoln County and that they must band together and supply their own. The repercussions of Tunstall's murder were felt fast and wide and as far away as England, for Tunstall was known and respected. Sir Edward Thornton, Great Britain's minister to Washington, D.C., arrived in the area within days and demanded that Tunstall's killers be brought to justice. A man named Carl Schultz, who was the Secretary of Interior under President Hayes, was infuriated with the Arizona Territorial Governor Sam Axtell's support of the Dolan Murphy clan and the Santa Fe Ring, and wanted to support Sir Edward Thornton's effort to get to the truth and take down the perpetrators. Schertz got Grant's approval to send in a special agent named Frank Warner Angel, a young but very capable district attorney from New York, and the first witnesses Angel contacted were McSween, Tunstall's partner, and Billy the Kid. McSween told Angel everything he knew about the Dolan Murphy clan, the Santa Fe Ring, and the corruption all the way up the political ladder to the governor, and wrote a 22,000-word statement, which went back to Washington in a 100,000-word report containing statements and affidavits collected by Agent Angel. You see very little of this well-documented story anywhere else except in James D. Horan's writings about Billy the Kid. But it's all well documented, and Special Agent Angel was a key part in taking down the Santa Fe Ring and all the corruption in Lincoln County. McSween and Billy knew that in giving this testimony, they were signing their death warrants. And they were. In a few months, McSween would be shot to death in the Battle of Lincoln, and Billy, who was accompanying McSween at the time, would shoot his way out and survive to wage war against Dolan and Murphy's hired killers. That meeting at Tunstall's store was still going on near midnight when a drunken Jimmy Riley, Murphy's junior partner, stumbled drunkenly into the room and headed toward McSween's table. Billy had a gun turned on Riley the moment he came to the door, and McSween ordered Riley to turn over his gun and unload his pockets, which he did, cursing everyone in the room. And then McSween grabbed Riley by the collar and escorted him to a side door, throwing him out of the building. Someone was looking at the items that Riley had unloaded from his pockets and noticed a small tally book. Checking the entries, they realized that Riley had listed in code the names of the men involved in furnishing stolen beef to the Murphy-Dolan-Ryan group. The men who had come that night formed a group that they named the Regulators, and they formed a posse, probably just as unlawful as Dolan's, 
The difference being that they, the regulators, were fighting against the unlawful oppression that was being done in the name of greed and lust for power. At any rate, they weren't willing to wait for the slow wheels of justice to turn when men would soon be dropping like flies. The Lincoln Justice of the Peace, John Wilson, now issued warrants for the arrest of Tunstall's killers and demanded that Sheriff Brady, a Dolan Murphy hack, bring them in, to which Brady told them basically where to stuff it. Wilson then handed the warrants to Antonio Martinez, a Lincoln constable, and Martinez deputized Billy and Fred Waite to accompany him on his visit to the Dolan Ranch to serve the warrants. Talk about riding into the hornet's nest. When they arrived at the ranch, Sheriff Brady was waiting for them and placed them under arrest for disturbing the peace. The kid demanded to be let go so he could attend Tunstall's funeral services that day, but Brady refused, waiting until later that day to release him and wait probably hoping to get a rise out of Billy so he could slap him with a more serious charge or kill him. But the kid kept his cool. Brady finally let them go. And when the kid and Waite rode into Lincoln, they found a group still lingering at the burial site, so they explained to them what had happened. The next morning, Billy, Dick Brewer, and a group of armed regulators rode out to find Billy Morton and Frank Baker. They found them in the rough country of the Lower Penasco, and after a brief gun battle, Billy managed to run down Morton's horse, taking him prisoner, while Brewer and the others captured Frank Baker. And for those of you who still think that Billy the Kid was a cold-blooded murderer, he could have easily shot Morton off his horse. But instead he ran it down and took him prisoner. Something to remember. And he knew that both Baker and Morton had been there when Tunstall was murdered. The next morning, March 8, 1878, Morton wrote a tearful letter to a lawyer cousin in Virginia, begging him to look into his death for he knew he wouldn't make it alive back to Lincoln. A lot of guilt riding on his back. On that ride back to Lincoln with the regulators, Morton had snatched a pistol from one of the deputies, William McCloskey, and shot him, killing him, breaking free from the group with Baker right behind him. The group quickly overtook them, and furious at the murder of McCloskey, killed them both as they tried to escape. When word of this reached the crooked Governor Sam Axdell, he immediately withdrew Wilson's commission as Justice of the Peace, which took away Dick Brewer's deputy status, and the regulators were now enemies of the state. Sheriff Brady now called in the 9th Cavalry and started looking for Billy the Kid, Brewer, and Waite. On Monday, April 8th, the Kid, now leading a small group of regulators, slipped into Tunstall's store in Lincoln, only to hear that Brady and his men were entering town. So Billy and his group took up positions at the east end of the long store. Brady and his deputy Hindeman came down the street and gunshots rang out. Sheriff Brady was hit and killed. Hindeman was hit but managed to find cover. Another Dolan man named Matthews, who had been one of the Tunstall killers, appeared and shot at Billy, creasing his side. Knowing they were outnumbered, the kid and Fred Waite made their way to the corral and back, mounted their horses, and rode for San Patricio, a few miles away. They didn't want to be cornered in Lincoln. Three days after the shooting of Brady and Hinman, the kid led a band of regulators on a wide search for other members of Matthew's posse, hoping to exact revenge on Tunstall's killers. They found Andy Buckshot Roberts at a sawmill on the Mescalero Apache Reservation, and a regulator named Charlie Beaudry shouted for Roberts to surrender. Roberts, an old buffalo hunter, had found cover just outside the sawmill house and replied with a rifle shot that caught Beaudry's gun belt, tearing it off, and then shattered George Coe's hand. 
but Baudry had managed to get off a shot that hit Roberts in the stomach first. Roberts, still standing, fired a second shot that hit Frank Middleton, severely wounded him, after which Roberts staggered into the house, setting up a fortified spot near an open window. Roberts was a tough old man and wasn't going to go quietly. Clutching his bloody stomach with one hand, he waited for a good shot. The regulators had spread out to cover the house, and for a while all was quiet, until Roberts' Henry rifle boomed, and Dick Brewer, who was covering the far end of the building, dropped, the top of his head, blown away. From inside they heard Roberts shout, I killed him! I killed the son of a bitch! The kid wanted to storm the mill house, but the others told him to wait. Roberts had taken one in the stomach, they said, and his time would come soon. Coe had lost a trigger finger, and Middleton had taken one through the lungs. They mounted up and took Middleton back to Lincoln for treatment. A few days later, a coroner's jury pronounced Billy Antrim the killer of Roberts, even though Beaudry had fired the shot. With Brady dead, Sheriff Pepin announced that he was going to bring in Billy the Kid alive or dead for the murder of Roberts. He received a message from Billy the next day that he was welcome to try any time he wanted. Meanwhile, the kid and the regulators continued to hunt for Murphy Dolan riders on the outskirts of Lincoln County. Doc Skurlock was now in command of the group, with Billy, the youngest, second in command. There were small skirmishes, with no one being killed, but the result being a constant harassment of Dolan's stock and crews, enough so that Dolan had to suspend his business, which prompted Tom Catrone, the head of the Santa Fe Ring, and the mortgage holder of Dolan's business, to take over the business. Catrone laid all the problems on Billy and ordered in the cavalry. Through May, June, and July of 1878, Catrone, the U.S. Army, and Dolan's men chased the regulators until finally three of the regulators were ambushed by Deputy Sheriff Pepin at Fritz Spring. Frank McNabb was killed, Ab Sanders was badly wounded, and Billy's friend, Frank Coe, was taken prisoner. It was now shaping up to be a fight between Dolan Murphy and Pepin's men against Billy the Kid and the Regulators, representing the McSween group. Chavez and his men took over the Montano building in Lincoln, fortifying it for a fight. Billy and his riders, including a newly joined Tom O'Folliard, a young Texan, joined McSween at his house. Deputy Sheriff Pepin, acting for Dolan and Murphy, assembled a new gang of outlaws and desperados led by known horse thief and rustler John Kinney and deputized them. Just a few weeks before, Kinney's men had shot up the little town of San Patricio, shooting out shop windows and terrorizing women and children. One of Kinney's men was named Bob Beckwith, the young son of a Pecos rancher, who had written a letter to his sister bragging of how he was going to hunt down and kill Billy the Kid. On July 11, 1879, Billy and the Regulators joined forces with a large force of Mexicans under the command of Billy's old friend, Martin Chavez. A law had just been passed by the federal government prohibiting the cavalry from entering into domestic affairs. But the man in command of nearby Fort Stanton was convinced that Murphy, Dolan, and Catrone were on the right side of the fight and decided to send 30 troopers, a cannon, and a Gatling gun into Lincoln to take down the McSweeney Bunch. Colonel Dudley, in charge, called out toward the Montano building and stated that if any of his men were fired upon, he would begin shelling the building. Chavez yelled back that Dudley was posting his troops directly in the line of fire. Dudley ignored him and walked off the street. There had been no shot fired, 
when Dudley suddenly accused McSween of firing at his men. A warrant was issued for McSween's arrest, and Pepin's men, now in front of McSween's house, walked up to the shuttered windows to serve it. While this was going on, Chavez and his men, after consulting with McSween and Billy, quietly slipped out of the Montano building and rode off, knowing that to stay was suicide, and they could be a lot more help later if they were alive. It turned out to be a good decision. A standoff ensued that had McSween exchanging notes with Colonel Dudley. McSween saying that he had warrants for Pepin and his gang for murder and larceny, and Colonel Dudley ignoring everything McSween was saying, hoping for an excuse to fire on the McSween house. When no excuse came, Dudley made camp with his soldiers that night just down the street with Pepin, Dolan, Riley, Kinney, and other members of the sheriff's gang of killers and rustlers that he called deputies. At one point, Susan McSween, McSween's wife, stormed into Dudley's camp and demanded that he safely escort her husband to the fort to wait while word was sent to Washington informing Frank Warner Angel, the agent who had been sent to investigate the murder of Tunstall by the president, of what was happening. But Dudley ignored her and told his orderly to remove her from camp. That was as good as a declaration of war for Susan McSween. But Dudley had other ideas. He sent two of Pepin's deputies to the McSween's house to burn it down, setting fire to the back door. The group inside was helpless to keep down the flames on the outside, which were being stoked by the dry wind. The house caught on fire, the rooms filled with smoke, and soon Mrs. McSween appeared outside the house, coughing and shouting to Pepin's sharpshooters who were waiting to pick off anyone who stepped out of the house that now was their chance to shoot down an innocent woman and that they were nothing but a bunch of cowards and children molesters. She walked up to Colonel Dudley, his face now flushed red both from her presence and the whiskey had been swilling, and he ordered two of his men to walk her back to her house, which was now engulfed in flames. She went in and found Billy, urged her to take the children and get out fast. She wrapped a shawl around her head, brought up her two girls to kiss their father, and gave McSween a long hug before leaving the burning house. Billy gathered the men inside, and together they hatched a plan to make a break for it out the back door, firing as they ran. His goal was to get McSween on a horse and send him to Chavez's men so he could carry on the fight. They checked their guns and made their break running out the back, lit by the flames of the burning house. Billy saw three soldiers firing at him from a nearby Tunstall building as he ran, returning fire with bullets whistling all around him. McSween was hit five times, killing him on the spot. Harvey Morris, a young law student who McSween had been mentoring, was hit and killed as he ran as well. Billy reached the gate unscathed and escaped to the Benito River, where he was joined by Tom Foliard and others. They headed for the Rio Doso Valley. Fred Waite, Charlie Beaudry, Doc Skurlock, and John Middleton, who, although wounded from the fight at the mill, had brought them food and extra horses from town and the kid. From here they headed for Fort Sumner on the Pecos, west of the Canadian River Country, an area where Billy had Mexican friends who could provide food and shelter. They could also work on ranches to earn money, now that they had lost McSween and had no friends left in Lincoln County. And the crooked law, as well as the U.S. Cavalry, were on the hunt for them to wipe them out. Meanwhile, Special Agent Frank Warner Angel was busy in New York and Washington in that summer of 1878. He began to file a report on the Tunstall killing and the incredible corruption that was occurring in Lincoln County and Santa Fe, and sent a list of questions, 
called interrogatories to Governor Axel, crooked territorial governor of New Mexico, to fill out and return within 30 days. Axel was stunned and sent an angry reply to Angel demanding to know who his accusers were while also protesting the 30-day limit. One of the charges was that Axel had accepted a $2,000 bribe from Dolan's group. Axel's angry letters were then forwarded by Angel to Secretary Schertz in Washington, along with a letter informing Schertz that Lincoln County was at war and plainly stating that Governor Axel, the Santa Fe ring headed by Catrone, and Dolan, Riley, and Murphy were on the criminal side and should be tried for bribery and murder. The letter also asked that Axel be removed from office. The Catrone group was immediately informed by Axel and sent their territorial district attorney, one of Catrone's Santa Fe ring, to New York to meet with Frank Angel. Angel told him that everything was already in the hands of Secretary Schertz, the Department of the Interior, and then President Hayes. Catron and Dolan's man, Ryerson, had contacts in Washington and threatened to use them against Angel. But the wheels were turning, and a signed order from President Hayes ordered the replacement of Axel on September 1, 1878. Axel's successor was to be Lou Wallace, the Civil War hero. And by the way, President Hayes had been a Civil War hero as well, being wounded five times at the Battle of South Mountain. Axel's successor was to be Lou Wallace, the Civil War hero author of Ben-Hur, and politician who thought he was in a position to ask for an ambassadorship to Rome or Spain or Mexico. So he was surprised to hear he'd been tapped as the governor to a territory which had not yet reached statehood. Before leaving for his new post, Wallace met with Agent Angel and went over all his reports in detail. He also met with Secretary Schertz and confirmed orders to be able to grant amnesty and pardons if necessary, along with the ability to impose fines and forfeitures for guilty parties if and when guilt was determined. A courier brought the news to Billy that Axel had been replaced, and a time of watchful waiting began to see if any changes to the situation would be made. That summer of 1878, Billy had met a bartender named Pat Garrett, who worked at Beaver Smith's Combination Saloon and Gambling Hall in Sumner. They became pals, sharing drinks, gambling tables, and girls. They stood out from the others, with Pat Garrett, a six-foot-four slender man with long arms, a thin bony face, deep-set brown eyes, and handlebar mustache, and Billy, five-foot-eight and weighing 130 pounds soaking wet. Garrett was also 10 years older. Back in Santa Fe, Lou Wallace was getting down to business, collecting information on outlaw activity, which was getting vicious, with a new Dolan thug at the head of local murder and mayhem named John Selman. His band of men stayed busy rustling cattle and killing Mexicans and ranchers, and no roads were safe from them. Lou Wallace was talking to visitors from both sides, listening to Colonel Dudley, who raged about all the outlaws in the county, especially those regulators, who Dudley said were behind it all and listening to Riley Dolan and Murphy's partner, Sheriff Pepin, who was demanding more men to keep the peace in this lawless county of Lincoln. Wallace also spoke with the widow McSween, who described in detail Dudley's actions at the Battle of Lincoln, along with the burning of her house and the assassination of her husband, and how the Murphy Company had been terrorizing ranchers there for years. Along with her was the young, one-armed lawyer, Houston Chapman, the partner of Ira Leonard in a Las Vegas, New Mexico law firm. We mentioned Las Vegas, New Mexico in our past series, The Quick and the Dead. That town's still got a lot of original buildings and it's used a lot for movies. 
Both attorneys had admired McSween and wanted to represent his widow. In a letter to Secretary Schertz, the young attorney Chapman had denounced Dudley, Tom Catrone, and the Santa Fe Ring, charging Dudley with the murder of McSween. Chapman and Leonard made it clear that they wanted to carry on McSween's fight for justice in Lincoln County. Chapman knew that would put a target on his back, and he would pay for that with his life, as we'll discover in Part 2. That fall, the regulators broke up, with Waite returning to the nations in Indian Territory, now Oklahoma, alone after asking Billy to join him. Henry Brown moved north to Kansas to settle down. John Middleton followed, hoping to start a new life and wanting to get shut of New Mexico. Billy and the new recruit, Tom O'Folliard, rode back to Lincoln after Billy said goodbye to his friend Pat Garrett, then Doc and Charlie, who were working at a nearby ranch. Things were about to get ugly for the kid and his new recruit in Lincoln. Join us next Sunday night for part two of our series on Billy the Kid and learn the story of the killing of O'Folliard, of young lawyer Chapman's murder, of Lou Wallace's amnesty, of Billy's secret meeting with Governor Wallace, and Billy's agreement to testify against Chapman's killers in return for a pardon that he never got. And in part three, we'll meet a man who says that he was Billy the Kid and that Pat Garrett had killed the wrong man. And it's a pretty convincing story that's gotten a lot of press. All coming next week at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And as usual, Apple listeners, we're asking for reviews. Please take a moment to send some kind words. I know it's not easy to take the 15 minutes to think of something, provide the Apple password, and enter it, but it sure does the podcast a lot of good and it helps us in the rankings. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters who have pledged monthly contributions to help us out. We appreciate that very much at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. We'll leave that link and all the others in the show notes here for you. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.